Welcome to the PoliticalBetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, it certainly feels like a momentous day in British political history, doesn't it? In fact, British history, full stop. Today is a day that Britain has formally invoked Article 50, thus starting off the process of leaving the EU. But what what does public opinion think of the Brexit process? What are public expectations and what happens next? And what is the future of the country more generally? We'll be talking about some of those issues on today's podcast. In part one, I'll be talking to fellow podcaster Rob Vance about some polling from YouGov and also GFK, more on that later, on what the public expect from Brexit and whether or not they think leaving is indeed the right or wrong decision. We'll also be looking at the latest Polling Matters opinion survey, which looks at the prospect of a snap general election, something that we talked about on last week's show. What do the public think? There are some interesting party breaks that you might not expect. Then later on the show, I'll be uh, talking to Mark Diffley from Ipsos Mori Scotland about what's going on north of the border. You might remember that we were going to speak to Mark last week, um, but obviously events uh, in London, the sad events in London, um, took over. So we talked uh, to Mark in the aftermath of Scotland, or or the Scottish Parliament, I should say, voting uh, in favour of a Nova independence referendum. But what happens now and what would that campaign look like? I'll be speaking to Mark later. And then finally, I guess part three of our... Uh, of today's podcast, if you like, will be me talking about the latest GFK poll. Now, this is the first political poll GFK have done in 12 years. Very excited about that. You may have seen on social media it got a little bit of attention. Some welcome, some maybe less so. But we'll be ta- I'll be talking about that at the end of the show just to go through some of those numbers. But I do cover some of them with Rob as well. So without further ado, lots to, lots to talk about. Let's crack on. So the first part of the show is me and Rob Vance discussing the momentous uh, events of the day and what public opinion tells us about what they mean. So I'm here with fellow podcaster Rob Vance. Rob, this is our first Skype call for the podcast. Exciting days. Indeed. Let's hope the sound quality holds up. Yeah. Um, so obviously, um, I was saying in the introduction, momentous day. Um, hard to make sense of it all, really. So obviously today, uh, Theresa May has invoked Article 50. There's been lots of platitudes um, from either side. You know, Theresa May has talked about no turning back. Donald Tusk said that the EU is missing us already. Um, I mean, what do, you, what do you make of it all at the moment? Yeah, I think, like you say, it's difficult to, to know what to make of it. I think um, what will be interesting is to see as the next couple of days what the narrative is that sets in in terms of what, uh, if you like, Theresa May's made it very clear what her opening gambit is. She's already been called out um, for trying to blackmail over security by making a not unreasonable point, which is if if there was a bad deal, um, then Britain's ability to supply, you know, um, play its role in defence of, of the continent is going to be compromised, which seems quite obvious, but perhaps isn't necessarily the most uh, appealing uh, starting point for some on the continent. Um, I think that kind of thing is going to be interesting of sort of pushing away some of that kind of froth of things which sound great and make easy newspaper headlines, but what actually uh, the position is, uh, or if you like, what the underlying position is of Theresa May in terms of the deal that she's trying to negotiate. Because I think the the public opinion side of this is actually quite in flux. Um, I think the interesting, one of the interesting polls out recently was, was YouGov talking about, you know, is it a false choice to make this trade-off between immigration and free trade? And whilst that's appealing for lots of people, 40% saying that it's 
it's a false choice uh that might that is essentially the choice that the eu that is the you know the bedrock of the eu negotiating position and whilst there might be shades of gray uh I feel like the british public is going into this not necessarily with eyes open to, to what the realities of negotiating with the eu sure. are going to be so just uh, just for the benefit of listeners this is a poll that yougov conducted recently which gave people basically four options to prefer between um, one was essentially that immigration was more important than um, free trade. The other was that free trade is more important than controlling immigration. But then there was this third option that said, basically, there's no, it's a false choice, and, and 40% chose that, um, whereas 24% uh, chose uh, free trade, 16% chose immigration as a priority, and then 19% said not sure. So um, high expectations aren't there, and that's certainly the case among Leave voters as much as anything. Yeah, and I think what's what's interesting is, in a sense, from a public opinion perspective, is is Theresa May trying to negotiate with the EU a deal which sits somewhere straddling, if you like, a kind of resigned Remain point of view, and if you like, a, a more uh, economically liberal, but potentially, you know, more concerned about sovereignty or whatever point of view in the levers, i.e. straddling that kind of divide in the referendum, or is she looking to deliver what, if you like, the 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 a hard Brexit or whatever you want to call it in terms of what the more, as it were, UKIP potentially end of the spectrum wants to see being delivered by uh, as the result of that referendum? Because uh, whilst I, I don't like the kind of dichotomy between hard and soft Brexit, it seems to me like that there is a, uh, there are all sorts of fissures within the Leave vote that make them more or less open to different kinds of deals um you know something like one in three of them um are open to sacrificing points of principle in order to get a better better economic deal um you know you've got a situation so where where's people that where are, where are those numbers from uh, so so actually we've just literally this minute got got a poll out of the field which we'll be you know releasing in the next couple of days but i think there's lots of evidence out there and you see it even in in this this yougov stuff that there are levers that are um more or less committed to um you know certain kinds of economic arrangements with with the eu um and more and are more or less willing to uh you know compromise on certain points of principle even to the extent of you know making financial contributions and so on and of course like the exact numbers that sit behind that will make a big difference to what kind of deal um Theresa May is able to get through the you know the British public mm. it's interesting because uh if you look at a macro level so at the risk of plugging my own poll but then it is my podcast so I'm going to do that um GFK had a poll out earlier this week asking them whether Brexit was did, do you think Britain made the right decision or wrong decision um, when voting to leave the European Union, 46% said right decision, 41% said wrong, 13% uh, said don't know. So I suppose that 13% there is going to be pretty critical, isn't it, when it comes to it? Um, but just to flesh that out a little bit, um, obviously there doesn't seem to be much Brexit regret from that headline finding. 88% of Leave voters think it was the right decision. 82% of Remainers think it was a wrong decision. There's some flux there, but ultimately, you know, we net out at kind of roughly where we were last June. But there is this huge generational gap I wanted to get your opinion on, Rob, because um, 32% of 18 to 24-year-olds thought Brexit was a right decision. 55% said it was a wrong decision. Um, if we look at those o aged over 65, 59% think it was a right decision. 29% said the wrong decision. So not quite the reverse, but pretty much the reverse. I mean, one, yeah. of the, one of the striking things is this generational gap. But I mean, is that a sign of youth that may change over time, do you think? Or is that like, like a cultural issue, like, for example, equal marriage, where these views are formed at an early age and therefore the Europe question doesn't go away because... You know, these young people get older. 
I think that's a fascinating and really big question, actually, that extends far beyond the scope of Brexit to all sorts of questions. And we've certainly seen this in the discussion over the Scottish referendum. Is it that people will take, a, you know, because we've seen similar breakdowns in terms of young people versus old people uh, and their views on, on uh, an independent Scotland? Is it that as people grow up, <laughs> grow up, that's not meaning to be in any way pejorative, but, you know, as, as people grow older, their exposure to different kinds of economic and financial and, and so on risk might well change their outlook. Um, so, you know, the cynic in me might say, well, it's all very well for over 65s who have their pensions and so on guaranteed by the British government and aren't that interested necessarily in a, in a narrow view of, of what, uh, you know, economic opportunities might exist for their grandchildren if they have them versus, you know, in the flip side in Scotland. Scotland, similarly, a, a concern over what an independent Scotland might do to their pensions, for example. Mm. Um, I think these these issues of, if you like, economic in the interaction of economic risk and social kind of values, which obviously are at play in both of these things in terms of young people are more liberal and cosmopolitan. They are more, um, you know, attuned to all sorts of things, which in Scotland is reflected in being, if you like, a, a, a Remainer and potentially more interested in, in, in Scottish independence in the rest of the UK is rooted in being more affiliated to the EU. Those values are important in terms of your, your social perspective. I think the argument would be what's more important to people as they grow older, those social values or the economic risk that they face. And my my view, based on all sorts of other stuff, is that the economic things uh, tend to sit in, in, in the background but become really, really important at certain points in people's lives like mm. when they get a job, like when they take out a mortgage, like when they're um, you know, taking on further financial risk or making big decisions about where they're going to be. Um, so I think that interaction over time is going to be really fascinating to watch. Certainly is. Um, one of the other findings from our poll this week was looking at the approval ratings of different uh, politicians and leaders. And I, I, I'll, I'll leave the uh, Donald Trump, Jeremy Corbyn one out of, of this conversation. But one of the, um, I think, relevant findings for the EU negotiation was that Theresa May has an approval rating of 46%. One of the things I did was I, I literally uh, borrowed the scale from Gallup um, to have that point of comparison because I was just curious as to see how uh, what would be a presidential approval rating for a, a prime minister. And hers was 46 Um but the government's was 40. So she's more popular than the government, which often often happens with prime ministers in their honeymoon period, if yeah. we can still call it that. Um, but her reputation's on the line with this Brexit negotiation, isn't it? And it has far wide, uh, wider uh, political implications in the long term. Absolutely. Um, and whether she wants it or not, her premiership... I hate that word, but you know, we're going to use it. Her premiership is going to be defined by the way in which she manages this issue. And I think this plays back the conversation we we're having earlier, which is what kind of Brexit does she actually want, which might be different from the Brexit that she can actually get and the Brexit that she can actually deliver. But what 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 is her kind of end vision? Um, is the kind of threat of a hard Brexit that a threat? Or is that a genuinely credible kind of position that she thinks she can, A, sell to the British sell to her sort of political coalition and the British people or you know can she get something better than that out of out of the EU which one would imagine is actually what she would want um, but then the question is can she either get it from the EU or sell it to her political coalition and I think what will be interesting 
And the interesting thing for me about the last couple of days is the pivot in the media debate, and therefore one might expect what will come as a pivot in public opinion over the course of time, from, if you like, the phony war of the run-up to Brexit, of Remainers being like, oh, well, maybe it's not going to happen, maybe Article 50 won't happen, maybe there won't be any kind of deal, maybe we can get out of this in some kind of way, to a more pragmatic view of, okay, so this is happening, what's actually going to be the outcome, and, and how do we get, um, as Britain, putting, you know, being sort of, you know, uh, sort of parochial here, but you know, how does Britain get to a place which uh, is, 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 in a sense, in, in the broadest interest and has the broadest coalition in support of that? Yeah, and I suppose one of the key dynamics here is that you know Theresa May may look at her small parliamentary majority and think that really the biggest um, you know barrier to any political success she might have is her her right rather than the opposition, which has been you know a story well told on this podcast. Um, I want to sort of finish by looking at the latest polling matters opinion survey. There were two questions that we asked. One of them was around when the next general election should be. Twenty-three um, percent said that they thought it should be this year. Fourteen percent said twenty eighteen. Uh, 7% said 2019, and then 34% said 2020, and then the 22% said don't know, um, which was interesting and split on party lines in a way that you may or may not um, expect. There was a second question that we asked um, where I'll sort of raise that party division, um, which was which of the following statements is closest to your view? Statement one, there should not be a general election until 2020 because that is when the next one is scheduled for and Theresa May should not be able to call an election at the time of her choosing. Um, 35% agreed with that statement. And then the second statement was there should be a general election sooner than 2020 because Theresa May has not been elected as Prime Minister by the public and she should be able to call one at a time of her choosing. Anyway, 38% chose that. So a very even split. 19% said no difference, eight, uh, no preference, sorry. 8% said don't know. So very divided public there, but the striking thing was that 55% of Tories said there should not be a general election until 2020, whereas 59% of Labour supporters said that there should. Now, the unkind uh, in me would say, you know, that's a bit turkeys voting for Christmas from, from the Labour perspective, if you look at the latest opinion polls, but I've got a feeling you're going to tell me that you're not surprised by that. <laughs> yeah, so I think the key thing here is this is a difference between Labour MPs and they would be in this sense um, the Turkeys and their supporters and their supporters I would suggest have two slightly different reasons why they would be more likely than certainly the MPs themselves to, to you know, based on the current polling, to want to call an election. I'm going to describe them as, if you like, the optimists and then the kind of, uh, for want of a better term, the kind of, um, the, the sort of the transactionalists. The, the optimists think that the polling is soft, that given a choice and given the, the headwinds around Brexit, that actually Jeremy Corbyn Labour Party can do better than everyone expects, that there'll be a renewed sense of mandate, um, that the Labour Party could potentially go to a, the country with a sort of whatever kind of positioning that might, it might entail, but could go to the country and make a sort of plausible case, and the result wouldn't be so bad. Um, and that, you know, if they're a Corbyn supporter, they would view that as a renewed mandate. You know, he stays in place, he doesn't move on, uh, and, and so so I think the, the, the more transactional view would be we need an election. It's going to be bad. It's going to be terrible, but it will force Corbyn out. And therefore, 
you know, we can kind of move on with the next stage and better to have, you know, certainty and then hopefully finality on the Corbyn problem than than otherwise. So I think two different groups, one optimistic, one much more pessimistic, um, but as supporters kind of advocating for an election for slightly different reasons. I think that what's interesting is that Conservative voters, you know, actually, rather than saying, yeah, let's have an election, let's go and wipe the floor, much more bearish about that. And you can see that a lot of that's driven by Leave supporters. So if we're, you know, looking at the, the questions together, Leave supporters are really unlikely to want a question, uh, uh, you know, an imminent general election. They don't want any kind of distraction from the process of leaving. There is a risk in terms of May having an expanded, I would suggest, maybe this is overanalyzing it, but May having an expanded mandate, less of a kind of compromising hand in terms of being able to negotiate a Brexit that they might not want. Um, at the most sophisticated level, but even at a banal level, a risk that a government comes in that's not as committed to Brexit as May appears to be. Mm. Certainly one to keep an eye on, uh, but that's, that, that, did, uh, that did strike me as a surprising finding, but obviously for yourself not. Um, Rob, that's all we've got time for, so uh, thanks as ever for your uh, contribution. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So that was Rob Vance. A big thanks to Rob as ever for his contributions to the podcast. Now moving on, uh, you're about to hear my conversation with Mark Diffley. Now, Mark is a research director at Ipsos Mori Scotland and an expert on Scottish politics. So I wanted to get Mark's view on what was going on north of the border following their big, their own big vote this week. Um, so here is that conversation. So I'm here with Mark Diffley, research director at Ipsos Mori Scotland. Mark, welcome to Polling Matters. Thank you. Thank you, Kieran. So um, we were obviously going to speak last week when um, sort of events took over, if you like, in London. But the yep. the postponed um, vote happened tonight. And why not give the listeners a bit of an overview of what went, what went down? Well, no surprises. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the motion, the first minister's motion um, to request a second independence refer- referendum passed its parliamentary hurdle. So, in other words, the parliament has backed her view that there should be another independence referendum between the between October uh, 2018 and the spring of 2019. So um, sometime between the Brexit deal being uh, fairly well known and being concluded. So in in that window, that's what the that's what her motion said. That was passed uh, just to get the arithmetic out of the way uh, by 69 votes to 59 which means that uh, all SNP and Green Party members voted for it and all the Conservative, Labour and Liberal Democrat members voted against. Uh, and just as a, a sort of an additional point, I suppose, on that, uh, the leader of the Scottish Greens, Patrick Harvey, had uh, an amendment which covered um, some of the detail of any second referendum, which was that 16 and 17 year old, 16 and 17 year olds and EU nationals uh, should be uh, automatically given the franchise as they were in 2014. That motion was, that amendment was also passed. So um, that's just a bit, of a, a bit of additional detail. But the headline is certainly that the Scottish Parliament has approved the First Minister's request uh, I, for a second referendum. And, and I suppose um, largely, largely to be expected given um, the composition of the Scottish Parliament. But What happens now? Because, I mean, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, um, was up in Scotland this week, wasn't she? And she seems to be making very clear that any referendum will happen on her timescale and and, and not Nicola Sturgeon's. So, I mean, at the same time, it does feel like this vote will strengthen Nicola Sturgeon's hands. I mean, what's your reading of the situation? 
So, the, I mean, the purpose of the parliamentary vote enables the First Minister to be able to say, well, this isn't just my request or the SNP's request. The, the language that she'll be using now is that, you know, this is the this is the will of the Scottish people as expressed through their parliamentary representatives. And for her, that gives the request stroke demand for a second independence referendum additional clout. Uh, and you know enables the, it, it, the rhetoric to be to be ratcheted up. I mean, you're absolutely right. The prime minister was in town um, in Glasgow yesterday, uh, and pretty much repeated the mantra of the last week or two that you know now is not the time, uh, and there is absolutely no budging on that. There has been subsequently from the vote, uh, so in, in the last sort of half hour, hour or so, the Secretary of State. David Mundell has already repeated that uh, in no uncertain terms, and I guess the one the one area where there may have been some compromise. So the first minister, very much in her in in her speech in the debate and uh, in, in interviews that she's given outside, has stated her willingness to kind of compromise on the date, or you know at least let's sit down and talk about the date. Um, that the secretary of state. David Mundell absolutely refused any uh, hint of any negotiation on any aspect of the second referendum. There, There is a very firm no, not now, coming from Westminster. So uh, what now? Well, interestingly, in during the debate earlier, the First Minister said that should the, uh, should the Prime Minister come back and repeat um, her now, her not now uh, mantra, then she will return to the Scottish Parliament after the Easter recess with a set of proposals to move this issue on. So quite what those proposals will be um, is, is anyone's guess at the moment. Uh, there has been talk of you know a non-binding referendum being held. I don't think that's in anyone's interest. There is talk of the First Minister trying to force a, a Holyrood election. I don't think that will happen either. So in a sense, we wait with bated breath to see what the First Minister will do next. And on on Theresa May's, um, from Theresa May's perspective, this only ratchets the pressure up, doesn't it, this week, obviously Article 50, and we're recording this on Tuesday evening, and Article 50 being invoked tomorrow. I mean, what what can she realistically do? I mean, presumably, um, the SNP want their referendum regardless, short of staying in the European Union there isn't really anything Westminster can do about that. So is it just all eyes, you know, ahead to a new referendum whenever that might be? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, my reading of it is that we're, we're going to have one. Um, <laughs> it's, just, it's just a case of when, uh, not if. Uh, this is now, I think, a sort of chase for public opinion. The UK government knows that it can't refuse a second referendum in perpetuity. It, just, it can't go on. It can't hold that line forever because at some point opinion will almost certainly turn against it and in favour of independence and of course that 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 isn't what the UK government uh, wants um, but they're relying on the polling evidence that's out there at the moment that there isn't a huge appetite for a referendum during the Brexit period um, and so holding that line um, is very much where the UK government is at at the moment. And actually, we may be in a position where um, that suits both sides of the argument, mm. actually, because 
um, polls being what they are in terms of support for independence and appetite for another referendum means that it would be actually very risky for the first minister as well for for, for Nicola Sturgeon to be uh, to be sort of fast tracking uh, fast tracking this process. So mm. we may end up by some sort of uh, fluke, almost by getting to a position where both sides will agree a rough timetable at some point after after Brexit is finished, and that that may actually suit both sides. But politically, it feels like we're quite a long way from that at the moment. Mm. I mean, I must confess that I find this whole situation in Scotland really difficult to read. Um, yeah. I'm someone that's been, well, remains quite pessimistic about the future of the union just because of the very clear-cut way that Scotland voted remain, the rest of the UK votes leave. It yeah. just feels like if Scottish independence is ever going to happen, it's going to happen under these conditions. Um, yeah. At the same time, there isn't this movement in the polls as well. So I'm, I'm sort of scratching my head here, Mark, and trying to work yeah. out which way it will go. I mean, without predicting any hypothetical referendum in the future, I mean, what's your sense of the direction of travel? The, the direction of travel is, well, there isn't a very clear direction of travel at the moment. And that that's where, the, where, where um, Nicola Sturgeon is in a bit of a bind, I think. I think that there's a reading of this that... Um, Immediately after the June 23rd EU referendum vote last year, she she almost immediately ramped up the rhetoric. So, you know, in the, it, you know, she did a speech within a few hours. Actually, of the final vote. Maybe she anticipated being, a uh, change that never never materialised. Perhaps. Yeah, and, and and I think that's absolutely I think that's absolutely right. Um. So, what she thought was that. Um, Scotland being dragged out of the EU against its will, which is clearly what is going to happen, um, what's on course to happen at the moment, would shift support for independence in her favour in a way that just hasn't actually materialised. Hmm. So, so for, and there's been lots of polling done on this actually, but so what we found and, and, and what others have found as well is that somewhere around 15% of voters in Scotland change their mind on the independence question as a result of uh, the EU referendum result last year. Now, sort of on the face of it, that would um, seem to be quite good news for the First Minister. But actually, when you dig into the into the numbers, um, it's a pretty much a zero-sum game. So as many Remain voters have moved from no to yes, as, as as leave voters have moved from yes to no, if you if you get that, mm, so yeah. the, the 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 movement is is almost the same in 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 either direction. So we have a lot of upset Scottish voters who voted Remain, um, who had voted no in 2014, who are sort of actively considering moving to supporting independence, but they are pretty much equally. Um, um, equally numbered by uh, people who voted Leave in Scotland in 2016, who had voted Yes in 2014, who frankly would prefer to stay in the UK outside of the EU than be in an independent Scotland inside of the EU. So what the result of all that means that we're pretty much in polling terms where we were um, at the back end of 2014 when we had the first referendum. And that is sort of frankly, a fairly disappointing result for the First Minister. But while that movement has been happening, while the polls have been detecting that movement in either direction, she has been sort of consistently ramping up the rhetoric 
And there's a reading of this situation, which I had sort of some sympathy with, is that that rhetoric was ramped up to such an extent that she really sort of had nowhere else, uh, nowhere else to go on this, mm. but to sort of formalise a request for a second referendum. So she's sort of in a place where she doesn't necessarily, uh, doesn't necessarily want to be. And therefore, actually, is in no rush to hold a second referendum, <laughs> uh, despite what the, you know, despite what the the, the motion that's just been passed in Parliament. It's and funny. It's funny you she... mention. It's funny you mention that churn because that that seems to be evident in a lot of the um, UK wide Brexit polling as well. We were, I mean, listeners will yeah. know that we had we had a poll this week. Um, GFK are not the only ones to poll on this question, of course, about whether. Brexit was the right or wrong decision, and in broadly speaking, it, face value, nothing's really changed. But actually, yeah. you look under the bonnet, there are some leavers that now think it's the wrong decision, but some remainers that now think it's the right decision, and it seems to, yeah. at the moment, net out at the sort of, like you said in Scotland, at the same sort of um, same sort of situation yeah. as to where we were. I mean, on the on the question of um, uh, Nicola Sturgeon and, and the SNP, and I guess the yes side more generally. Um, what's your view on the type of voters that they've got to win over then to the yes side? I mean, if we think about the um, the SNP and how they went from a situation where they'd lost the referendum in 2014 but managed to yeah. win a parliamentary majority, that seemed to be by locking in these Labour voters that would vote for the SNP in devolved elections. Yep. Not that straightforward, yep. but that was obviously a big dynamic uh, in, yep. that, uh, in that trend. Do you have a view on who they sh- who Nicola Sturgeon should be looking for? I guess you were mentioning the it, people that voted Leave who were yeses last time. Yeah, but, I mean it's a, it's a very good question. It doesn't have an easy answer, partly because there is so much movement in either direction. So there has long been a there has long been a view that the the forty five percent who voted yes in twenty fourteen are absolutely locked in and absolutely guaranteed. To, to vote uh, yes again whenever another whenever another referendum comes another referendum comes along. So those yes supporters of 2014 are absolutely locked in. The problem is that we now know that they're not, and that and that you know the Brexit vote has changed their minds as well. But I think if we look at if if we look very broadly, so when we when we did a poll back in uh, February. Um, when we asked on a scale of one to ten where you are on the on the independence question, we saw that if we look at the middle of that, so anywhere between sort of four and seven on that scale, um, you get roughly about 15, 16 percent um, of voters. So they are the ones who are kind of up for grabs, I guess, in that sense. And unsurprisingly, they are generally people who would vote either Labour or Lib Dem. So they are those who are in the, in the middle, really, on this position. So SNP voters very much at one extreme, and Tory voters very much, um, very much at the other extreme. They tend to be people from more affluent areas. They're more likely to be women. So there is, you know, we, we need more evidence. We need more polling evidence, obviously, to kind of um, to build to build this up a bit. But that's who they will. That's who they will sort of tend to be. In that kind of undecided camp, but the 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 sort of the the fly in the ointment here a little bit is that the there is a proportion of um, as I mentioned previously, is a proportion of yes voters who are moving in, who are moving towards no because of the Brexit vote, and they will tend to be very sort of traditional um, nationalists who who want 
sort of all decisions taken in uh, taken in Scotland and who actually see the EU as a sort of almost a bigger bogeyman uh, than the U- than the UK government. So they will be sort of demographically, I think, sort of slightly different from uh, the remain the remain voters who feel sort of slightly uh, slightly unsure now about independence because they're more worried about being dragged out of the EU. There are, there are absolutely no uh, simple answers uh, to this because there is actually under the surface so much movement going on. Uh, absolutely, it's a very complex situation. Um, yeah. If we, if we look at the if we look at the no side, the future no campaign. I mean, one of the striking things yeah. for me is how how different the well, in theory, how different the composition of that leadership will be, and not just in Westminster yeah. but locally in Scotland as well. Ailsa Henderson uh, from the University of Edinburgh was on a couple of weeks ago, and regular listeners will have, have listened um, to her, her thoughts with, with interest. And one of the things that struck me in what she said was about how difficult it would be. Um, for a future no campaign to get its message discipline right, you know, to, to decide what yeah. the message was, and then obviously to have all the different mm-hmm. players up up north of the border to actually uh, deliver it. I mean, what's your sense of how a future no campaign will look? I mean, on the one hand, Ruth Davidson does seem to be really, really popular at the moment in Scotland, so I guess mm-hmm. she would be the obvious person to lead to lead that campaign. But at the same mm-hmm. time, it's gonna a bit like Remain in England. It's gonna re- it's gonna rely a lot on these Labour voters as well. So how, how do they square that circle? It feels <laughs> more difficult than it was yeah, it is and you're and, and you're absolutely right um there's there, there's a there's a quite a neat line that you know the no side won the referendum in 2014 but the yes side won the campaign so in other words if you look at polling um before the campaign started and where it ended up of course the the, the no side won but the movement was was towards yes um and it's absolutely clear that part of the reason for that was that the you know there were elements of the no campaign that were quite uh, sort of chaotic. You know there've been books written on this that you know they that you know they couldn't they they couldn't agree as you say sort of single lines lines of attack and so on. And if anything that's got you know that's got that's got worse in the intervening period or more difficult to do as you say. I mean the issue with Ruth Davidson is that. She's extremely popular and has done a, a, a great job from a conservative point of view of really putting them back on the map in Scotland. They are now um, the second party in the Holyrood Parliament. And she sort of personally, in some polls, she actually personally outpolls the, the, the first minister in terms of um, satisfaction ratings. But as we were just discussing, the, the, uh, the voters at play here in the middle those who are sort of undecided um, aren't tend not to be Tories. So having a, she will absolutely and clearly play a key role in, in any forthcoming campaign and play it with gusto in the way that she sort of debated um, this issue in the last, uh, in the last few days during this debate. But has she got the, I mean, has she got the power to persuade some of these uh, undecided for the no camp? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a moot point if I'm absolutely, if I'm absolutely honest. But then you sort of scout about and you think, well, if not her, who actually leads it? And of course, it may not be a politician; it may be someone from business or someone from sort of civic society. J- uh, J.K. Rowling's been uh, mentioned yeah, by some ambitious it, people, it, I think. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Exactly. And um, you know, who takes on the sort of Alistair Darling role from uh, from 2014? I think what's probably 
what probably won't happen that happened in 2014 is that you have this kind of better together style coalition. I think it's pretty clear, even from the no side of this argument, that they don't want to go down that route again. So there will almost be sort of separate campaigns from the Conservatives, from Labour and, and, and from the Liberal Democrats. So we'll, we'll, we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. But it's a real, it's one of the real weak points, I think, of any future no campaign is, you know, the organisation, the strategy, the the thinking, I think, even on on that side of the argument when you hit any new campaign is really underdeveloped when you compare it to the organisation, the money, the the sort of thinking that's gone in on the other side. A lot of the infrastructure, of course, is still in place from 2014 as well on the, on the yes side of this argument. So um, I don't think we should, un, you know, overlook or underplay the fact that when we do get into any any second campaign, I think the yes side, though it's likely it will start behind um, in the polls, um, starts ahead in terms of that kind of organisational and financial advantage, which I think is going to be really important. Not least, of course, because you know the hundred, hundred twenty thousand new SNP members, and <laughs> um, that no, you know, no other party has, um, are sort of you know raring to go. Um, and all these things are going to be really important when we get into another campaign. And I guess the final question um, from me, I mean, how important do you think what's going on at Westminster itself will be um, in this whole dynamic? I mean, one of the things that I'm thinking about here is that, okay, so there's a referendum, what, 2019 or around that time, the prospect of Theresa May winning a stonking landslide victory in a hypothetical general election, which seems to be the direction of travel we're going now, but who knows, things can obviously change for a number of reasons. Um, particularly when you're going through such, such a huge change that we're going through with Brexit. Um, I mean, do you think Scots will be looking, upon, looking at that result and sort of weighing that up as they make their decision? It, it, it's a really good point. And one of the sort of current attack lines of the, of the yes side, of the first minister's side of this argument is that, you know, we need to, we need to leave the UK because we're going to have a, a sort of hard right wing Tory government forever. Or at least until, you know, maybe the 20, the late 2020s, 2030 or, or, and so on. And that's really not what we're about. You know, we're, we're different from that. We don't want that. We don't want Brexit. We don't want austerity and so on and so forth. So that line, um, very much plays into, um, very much plays into the first minister's, um, dialogue and thinking on this. So I, th- I think that's a really, really important point. <clears throat> when we thought the, when we fought the 2014 <clears throat> referendum, of course, um, and we were looking ahead to um, the 2015 general election, what that outcome might be, it, 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 it was clear at that point, although it didn't turn out that way, of course, that um, that was going to be a very close election and there was a distinct possibility that Labour under Ed Miliband may have been um, may have been elected. And of course, that, that was... That prospect may have, at the margins at least, um, persuaded some, particularly Labour voters, um, to carry on supporting uh, to carry on supporting the union because, well, okay, the union becomes much more palatable if you've got a Labour if you've got a Labour prime minister and a Labour and a Labour government. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting point to the extent that, well, the, the absence of that possibility um, may you know negates that argument. And may make some of those Labour voters actually um, much more likely to back uh, to back independence in a second referendum, knowing that 
you know, a new independent Scottish government may look um, very different from a from a right wing uh, conservative government down south. Absolutely, no fascinating stuff, Mark. Thanks very much for your time. Where can people find out more information about the polling that you're doing on this if, if they're interested in finding out more about Scottish uh, public opinion? Well, it's, I mean, ipsosmori.com website has all that. There's a there's a, a very extensive uh, page dedicated to independence referendum voting um, on there. I'm at Mark Diffley One on Twitter, and I regularly uh, bang on about these issues as, as, <laughs> as you'd expect. Uh, at Ipsos Mori Scott is the uh, is ours as well. Um, there's, I mean, although it's not ours, I think the What Scotland Thinks website run by Professor John Curtis is a really good landing spot for looking at, you know, what the polls, not just ours, but what all the polling in Scotland is saying. Um, and he, he does some pretty good analysis on there as well. So there are plenty of plenty of places to go to um, if you want to see how this um, how this story is developing. I'm sure people will check some of that information out. Uh, Mark Diffley yeah, from Ipsos Mori Scotland, thank you very much for your time. Great, thanks, Karen. Well, that was Mark Diffley there from Ipsos Mori Scotland. A big thanks to Mark for his contributions to this week's show. Obviously, sorry I couldn't get to speak to him last week, but he was uh, definitely good value um, this week. Lots of important topics covered there, and I guess all I can really say is that I hope, as we do leave the European Union, that not just uh, Scotland, but Northern Ireland and Wales are very much taken into account in the proper way um, when we do so. Particularly Scotland and Northern Ireland, areas that voted to remain, yet the rest of the country voted to leave, and with their own unique uh, difficulties and challenges ahead we're certainly going to keep talking about them on this podcast we think they're important to talk about so stay tuned for more episodes in the future on that i want to close this week's episode though um, by talking about the latest well sorry the first into a gfk political poll in 12 years many of you may have seen that i just want to cover off a couple of points on it we um, asked about voting intention um, approval ratings of different party leaders and the government and also uh, some of the numbers I spoke about with Rob there earlier um, regarding whether Brexit was the right or wrong decision. Um, On voting intention it was a pretty bog standard uh, attempt for the first one. All we did was we um, took a sort of nationally representative sample of 1938 uh, British adults so not including Northern Ireland and we asked them who they'd vote for. Um, We essentially called you a likely voter if you were 8 out of 10 or above likely to vote in a hypothetical general election tomorrow and had voted in the previous general election in 2015. Now, of course, some people won't be won't have been old enough to have done that. So if you weren't old enough to vote in 2015, then we didn't make you say that you, you did because obviously that would be foolish. And the numbers we got back were Conservative 41, Labour 28, UKIP 12, Lib Dem 7, Green 6 and other 6. Now, with these sorts of numbers, when it's the first one we've done in a little while, it's quite hard to tell whether those are typical numbers, meaning that we uh, generally have the Lib Dems on 7 and, and quite low, and the Greens on 6 and quite high, and UKIP on 12 and quite high, or whether this is just normal random sample variation that you might get. Uh, and in reality, the Lib Dems are on you know 10, UKIP are on about 10, Greens are down at 4 or 5. It's quite hard to know whether there's a house effect going on, whether there's a random sample noise. So we'll have to pay attention to uh, our future polls to see what happens um, there. The spread of 13 points between Conservative and Labour on the low side in, compar- in comparison to some other polls. Although I should say that the, um, the poll was taken 
in um, early March, so well, the first half of March, March 1st to March 15th. So um, perhaps before some of the biggest shifts we've seen uh, took place. But yes, it is on the low side. That said, I'm not going to be tweaking my numbers to match everybody else's. Um, I think that that would be a sort of dangerous thing for the polling industry to be engaged in. But the numbers that, so that was the voting intention numbers, but the numbers that caught the eye uh, of, of, of many in the media were the approval ratings of Jeremy Corbyn and Donald Trump. So we asked whether people approved, disapproved, or had no opinion on Jeremy Corbyn uh, in, in handling his job as leader of the opposition and how Donald Trump is handling his job as president of the United States. Jeremy Corbyn had a 17% approve, 58% disapprove, 26% uh, no opinion. Donald Trump had 18% approve, 60% disapprove, 22% no opinion. So virtually identical figures. And I must say, in all seriousness, this did uh, surprise me uh, a great deal. Because although I expected Jeremy Corbyn's numbers to be that fair bit worse than, let's say, Theresa May's, for example, I didn't quite expect them to be quite so bad. And you have to put this in the context of Donald Trump being someone that people have signed, you know, hundreds of thousands, I'm not sure, was it even millions, uh, signed a, a petition saying he shouldn't be allowed in the country. And yet Jeremy Corbyn's uh, ratings are uh, as low as his. Now, different people approve of each man um, with, with Jeremy Corbyn, his not particularly good approval ratings are strongest amongst Labour voters and amongst younger people, whereas Donald Trump uh, has the strongest approval ratings amongst Leave voters, uh, but more explicitly UKIP uh, supporters, about half of UKIP supporters approve of the Donald, or should I say President of the Donald. Um, so that was the one that caught the eye. Some people liked it. Some people thought it was a really interesting finding. Other people um, in the blogosphere were, were critical. I don't want to comment on too much of that um, today, if you if you produce numbers that are negative for things like Brexit, Donald Trump, the SNP, Jeremy Corbyn, then you will get people criticised who don't want to hear it and want to shoot the messenger. And I understand that. Uh, in terms of the numbers themselves, we publish all of our data tables, methodology, questions asked, all of that on our website. It's on my Twitter account. You can find it on the GFK website. So if you want to find out more about the poll uh, and understand how it was done, then please do. Uh, please do check it out. So that's all we've got time for though for this week's podcast. Uh, big thanks to my guests Rob Vance and Mark Diffley again. Um, the music you're about to hear is by Ian Holmes called Happy Days, licensed under a Creative Commons. Um, if you do like what you hear, please do share us on social media. Give us a nice rating on iTunes. It really helps get the podcast name out there. And if you really want to help us and really like what you hear, then vote for us in the British Podcast Awards. Uh, just go to www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. Find polling matters and give us uh, your vote in that in those awards that would really help get our name out there even more but that's all we've got time for this week thanks for listening